Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Well, welcome back to a new week. Um, last week was a doozy. I, I really am sort of hopeful that, you know, kind of in the Jewish tradition of Sukkot, which ended uh, yesterday, yeah, um, that we could have sort of, you know, a week of mercy and some joy and some reflection. I don't think we're going to get it, but um, it would be nice, right? It would be nice if we could just have a few days where... We just focused on the harvest and slept in our huts and stuff like that. Uh, probably not going to happen. So uh, <laughs> meanwhile, we are in the middle of this so-called pause while this investigation ensues. But I think also we're kind of licking our wounds collectively as a nation, as a society uh, from last week. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that today and how that's going to go. And we'll try to leave some room for your phone calls. I should say in the uh, final segment of today's show, we'll talk about something else because I think you need something else. I am your doctor. I'm now going to prescribe things for you. Um, This isn't necessarily going to be a joyful topic, but it's different and it's interesting. We'll get to that. Anyway, right now we're going to start with an old friend of the show, Margaret Carlson, columnist at the Daily Beast. Uh, She wrote a a piece Sunday for the New York Daily News uh, on why Christine Blasey Ford's testimony mattered. Uh, And she's uh, with us right now. Hi, Margaret. Oh, Colin, nice to talk to you again. And I'm going to try to stay tuned for the third segment. Okay. Um, So um, I I guess where I want to begin is that, you know, Margaret, we've you made a little joke about how it took something really horrible for us to get back in touch with one another. Um, We've been through horrible things as a nation before. We've been through you and I are both of an age where we can remember Watergate and we can remember uh, Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas and Iran-Contra and the Clinton-Lewinsky-Whitewater stuff. And you could say that we've been in a lot of trouble since November 9th, 2016. There was something different about really last Thursday in particular, and it seemed to have something to do with the very visceral, emotional nature of things. You started with Christine Blasey Ford, uh, who was wearing her emotions very close to the surface. Then you went to Brett Kavanaugh, who in a different way was uh, emoting in a very aggressive, angry way, uh, to Lindsey Graham, who just showed that you could be more angry uh, than Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, and then uh, a day later, Jeff Flake was getting on an elevator, and we got this. On Monday, I stood in front of your office with Adi Barkin. I told the story of my sexual assault. I told it because I recognized in Dr. Ford's story that she's telling the truth. What you are doing is allowing someone who actually violated a woman to sit in the Supreme Court. This is not tolerable. You have children in your family. Think about them. I have two children. I cannot imagine that for the next 50 years, they will have to have someone in the Supreme Court who has been accused of violating a young girl. What are you doing, sir? So, Margaret Carlson, uh, a lot of times with these other uh, scandals and crises that I mentioned, people kind of try to keep the emotions below the surface, you know. But it seems as though one common thread through all this is we've been through a very emotional 48-hour period. 
Well, it was all televised live. Mm. It There was a huge unknown factor before Thursday. No one had seen Dr. Ford. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't know. You know, the the hashtag believe survivors, I think, should be hear survivors, give them benefit of the doubt, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure believe is right. You have to, you know, state your case and, 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 and give facts. But from the moment she raised her right hand, I mean, she w- I, I've never found myself so attuned to a witness. She was believable, credible, solicitous of the people that were trying to trip her up and lay a trap. Uh, she was genuine. And that threw Republicans from my, what my reporting told me in between the end of her testimony and when Brett Kavanaugh came on. Republicans on that committee were crestfallen because they were moved by her. They saw what they what was right before their eyes and 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 they thought this is you know what are we going to do about this that prosecutor didn't really help that much i mean certainly didn't really lay a glove on her unless you think whether she's really afraid of flying or really really afraid of flying was what was at issue because that was the only thing you know, she brought up and the message even though brett kavanaugh said oh i didn't watch the testimony he Either was that was another white lie, or he was watching it, and he saw, and he was told to come in blazing, I think with his guns blazing. Now, I, I hadn't factored that in, and when I first saw him, and I went, I'm going to speak as a layperson for just one second, and then I'm going to stop, but I was at a wedding this weekend, so I get to talk to lay people, mm-hmm. and I admitted that I got a little bit choked up when he talked about his daughter. Mm-hmm. But he immediately then turned, and and he wasn't feeling sad for his family. He was feeling sorry for himself, and he was putting his resume out there and then going off on, you know, as Matt Damon said, he he went from 11 to a full 15. Mm -hmm. So everyone saw that. I mean, you just saw it. And in my life, I'm from a big Irish Catholic family, and I have a lot of uncles who had a little bit of trouble with, I like beer, uh, which was a, like a, a little motto of, of Kavanaugh. But at their worst, I've never seen that. Even in my personal life where people get really mad at me, I've never seen them that angry. So that's, that's there. It's, it's kind of indelible. And I don't know what ads Republicans can put up when more people watched that than I think some, I don't have the statistics, but than some Super Bowls. Right. So I think also there's a way in which, I mean, during 2016 in political science, uh, people talked about the Overton window, which is kind of the understood, generally understood framework of of acceptable forms of discourse. And and we saw it change and mutate and warp during the 2016 campaign. And, And Margaret, I sort of felt like I was seeing something like that, too. You know, when you think about people testifying before Senate committees, you know, in, in history, they've often been asked very sharp edged and painful questions. They've been confronted about things that could get them sent to prison or that could cause them great distra- disgrace. But 
there was this sort of norm that losing it meant losing, right? If you totally lost your cool, you you had basically lost the moment in front of a Senate committee. You think of Hillary Clinton in her 11-hour grilling about Benghazi. Like her whole job was to keep her emotions in check and never lose her patience. And it was like this, I, I would agree with you, but I, not only have I rarely seen anybody get that mad anywhere, but in a Senate committee, that seemed to be the opposite of what people typically try to do. You've seen more of this than I have. I mean, maybe just react. Well, I've never seen it there. I've never seen it in my life. I've never even seen it at the DMV where people get furious <laughs> over their traffic tickets. So this this was this was quite an, an, an extravagant display. But it wasn't accidental. That, that I mean, in that. Trump was disappointed in his performance on Fox, so he was saying, uh, you know, sometimes I have a producer uh, say in my earpiece, get angry, get angry mm-hmm. on TV. Trump is telling uh, Brett Kavanaugh he wasn't angry enough. But even Trump was pro- probably talking about a justified anger, some some level that I would have tolerated uh, for his family and his daughters in the process, because it is excruciating. But he went way beyond that, and he exposed weaknesses that he wouldn't have if he had control of himself. So if he's a great jurist, he simply wouldn't have behaved that way. And no judge can behave that way. You can't, you can't even have those emotions that are way, way, way deep down, because they can come out. Now we know he's got them. I would, I would not. Well, I'm a girl, so of course we can't do this at all. But I'd be hiding in under my covers in bed if I'd ever done that. Right, and and I do think you know you talked about whether he'd been coached during the intermission between the two testimonies. I think the coaching probably came earlier. I'm, I think Ezra Klein might have been one person who pointed this out over the weekend. But there's something Trumpian about his opening statement. It uses terms like national disgrace and circus, uh, and and oddly. Uh, Margaret, once again, you've probably watched more Senate testimony than I have. I don't think I've ever heard somebody come in and sit down to give Senate testimony, especially in a, a, a Supreme Court confirmation hearing, and begin his speech by saying, I wrote this myself. Why would there be any reason to say that unless you knew <laughs> that there was some reason? I mean, did you find that a little puzzling? I did, too, because... Most people who were watching, because this is a very public event, this is not just for the press or other senators, would assume, by the way, he was writing it himself. Mm-hmm. So he's, 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 he's saying something that, for the most part, we don't believe, because that's why there's a lot of speechwriters and other things. But we already knew from, the, from all the reporting after the Fox interview that his audience have won, of one had told him you know, he was very disappointed. In, in what he'd said. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember, uh, but I don't have it in front of me, um, Clarence Thomas saying national disgrace and circus mm. or things very close to that. That was, um, you know, that was, and, you know, we remember high tech lynching, but yes. I, I think we also had national disgrace. Um, I, I thought that was a bit too far, but actually what really told me he was unhinged was to be as insolent as I've ever even seen my own daughter be 
to United States senators. Mm. Yes. I, I've never had that kind of back talk. Have you? I mean, it's, it's, it's like, well, who snaps at a senator and says, okay, well, you tell me. Right. Don't no. ask me. Yeah. You tell me. Again, I thought a little bit of Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Clinton, you know, she had that 11-hour grilling about Benghazi, but there was, a, there was one that preceded that and where she got into a certain amount of trouble for saying, what difference at this point does it make? She's talking, actually, when she does oh, that. because they were dead. Yes, oh, yeah. that was... Yes. And, um, but and she, that was a heartfelt. Right. That was in sorrow. Yeah. You know, that was not it, it might have been slightly impatient. I was there for that. Slightly impatient, but a, a lot of sorrow. Right. And certainly nothing, nothing like the, the kinds of repeated outbursts, outbursts, outbursts that we saw from Kavanaugh. She took some heat just for saying that one sentence in a pretty calm tone of voice. Uh, I it just it's nothing like I, I would agree the talking back to senators this way is nothing I've ever seen in my life. We have to take a very quick break. We're going to come back with a little bit more Margaret Carlson right after this. We're back with Margaret Carlson, uh, her uh, piece on Sunday for the New York Daily News, Why Christine Blasey Ford's Testimony Mattered, uh, is a must-read for all of you. It's great to have um, uh, Margaret on the show. Uh, Before we get to some of the political, uh, I don't know, talking points uh, of this situation, I want to just talk to you about one more thing, because I have nobody else except for Bill Curry that I can talk to about this. Uh, And that would take a lot lot longer. Um, So... um, you know, you mentioned uh, your Irish relatives. I, you know, I was I, I I thought it was notable that America, the public publication of the Jesuits, uh, had endorsed Kavanaugh and then withdrew pretty publicly their uh, their endorsement of him, and they gave some reasons for it. But I also found myself thinking, what are the Jesuits, who are an extremely thoughtful uh, Catholic order, what do they value? And it seems to me that they value moral reflection, repentance, atonement. You know, that that sense of really thinking about what you've done. And the one thing that we know from watching Kavanaugh is that, you know, I mean, he's certainly it's with he's within his rights to say that he never did this particular thing to Christine Blasey Ford. But what's clear is he won't take ownership of anything else. There are all these other things, as you said, that are easily catchable lies, falsehoods, evasions, misleadings, you know. And I I would have to assume the Jesuits watching all this said thought this is not how we teach people. We teach people to think about the things they did wrong and take ownership of them. You know, I think the Jesuits have a lot of affection for the Eighth Commandment. And when I was in school, if you told a little lie, you would be punished so severely, as severely as a big one. So, um, and one of the things uh, Kavanaugh does is he he wasn't, I think he was so angry, he wasn't even strategic the whole time, because if if the FBI, which I don't think is going to, comes up with, you know, some, uh, another set of facts which support um, Dr. Ford. His only defense is, well, I did drink a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made, he, he, he tried to say he didn't, even though Trump at the press conference, see, Trump at the press conference assumed that Brett Kavanaugh had said he drank a lot. So mm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what that's about. But the, the, in, in 
as a judge, he knows that instructions to a jury, and I know it's not a jury trial, but a lot applies here, that if you, a, a jury is allowed to assume that a person who lies about little things is untrustworthy and may have lied about other things. It is, it is a foundation of, of a lawyer and a judge's life. So why he would do that and not just own up to it, and as a, as a lawyer, not as a judge, but as a lawyer, uh, his, his strategy, he'd have to know, you can, it's easily disprovable. So don't, don't, even if it, it's not a moral question for you, don't do it because we're going to disprove you and you'll be exposed. Right. That was a point, by the way, made in the usual riveting and electrifying fashion by uh, our own U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, uh, who gave it to him in Latin. I felt like maybe Kavanaugh didn't actually know what that meant in Latin. But um, I, Margaret Carlson, I, I want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about this little strange uh, week of reflection we have while the poll, while the probe is going on. There's also a lot of polling going on. There's a lot of um, ginning up of various bases. I think we've both talked about this mostly from the perspective of people who were very troubled by Brett Kavanaugh's performance. But there's a reason that 10 out of 11 Republican senators on the committee, uh, well, actually all of them, voted for uh, confirmation. Uh, and, and that is, you know, that they think that Brett Kavanaugh is worth something to them out there with their base in their places of origin. How do you think this is going to play out? Well, I did say I think that the that, that the hearings will be in people's minds. They will have seen it, and and they won't forget it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they're already up. I mean, the Judicial Crisis Network has a huge number up, and so do Democrats. So there'll be a lot of ads out there, and so it could persuade some, but it's not going to move anybody off the ends, off the wings. But in that great mushy middle. I think it'll be very persuasive. The hearings are persuasive. And the fact of his getting on the court in spite of it is men saying, whether or not they say it out loud, as uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp's competitor, her, her challenger in North Dakota said, well, if it's true, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But that not that the conclusion that, that we'll draw? Because... It doesn't matter. Kavanaugh's performance, his lack of credibility, his willingness to tell small lies, his uh, his anger management issues, etc., didn't matter. They wanted to win, right? And because they wanted to win, they did this. Uh, and I, they have. They feel like they have to deliver another Supreme Court um, to their to their base, uh, another seat. So and they know there's not time now. So they're, they're, what what would happen? It seems to me is you know Trump would withdraw him, and every once in a while, don't you hear a little bit of withdrawal in Trump's voice? Yes. Uh, on Friday, I did, but but McConnell is not somebody. This is his life's work. From the moment he 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 denied the seat to to, to Merrick Garland, this is what he's devoted. This is his legacy. So he's not going to let it go, and he's not going to take the chance, even though it's small, that the Senate will flip. 
Right. Although it seems to me that for McConnell, you know, he has a number of ways that he can do this. I would assume, including, you know, even if the Senate flipped, he could do a lame duck session uh, appointment uh, and try to ram the confirmation through uh, of some other judge. And and it does seem to me that nobody really is prepared to die on the cross for Brett Kavanaugh. You know, that, that Trump has made it clear just in the same sense that, of course, that Michael Cohen once said that he would take a bullet for Donald Trump. Uh, and then it turned out not to be the case by a long shot. Donald Trump isn't willing to take a bullet for much of anybody either. He'd be just as happy with, you know, somebody else who was Brett Kavanaugh, light or dark or whatever they came up with. I, I, I sort of differ. I think Lindsey Graham is. Yeah. Well, we don't know what that was all about. <laughs> we don't. And I mean, in two years, I think it's two years. He has a race and he may South Carolina is more conservative than he is. So he may want he maybe he's already campaigning or maybe he wants to be attorney general. But he certainly flipped over to the other side on Trump now. There's no now there's no daylight. Remember he golfed but yes. then he said something negative, but then he golfed again and now he's gone. Lindsey Graham and to all my friends who said to me, Margaret, stop being soft on Lindsey Graham, I say to you, you were right. I was wrong. Right. Well, there's something very odd that happened with Lindsey Graham, and we don't know. As you say, there was a golf date after which, first of all, Lindsey Graham said something that seemed preposterously untrue to golfers about President Golf's President <laughs> Trump's golf score. And and Are then you a golfer, I am not a golfer. Golfer. So um, and then began to play this very different role, kind of almost the opposite of the rather skeptical role he'd played beforehand. And people have speculated all kinds of things. He was offered the attorney general's uh, position somewhere down the road. They switched out his medications while he wasn't looking. I mean, we don't really know what happened, but there's a very different Lindsey Graham out there. Uh, and and I do think that McConnell probably is playing this at a level a little uh, of 2D or 3D chess. You know, he's got the Kavanaugh thing, but if he doesn't get Kavanaugh, he can also say to his base, look what happens to me. Look what happens to us when we don't have enough numbers. This is why you need to vote in your local Republican U.S. Senate candidate, because otherwise we lose great soldiers of the cause like Brett Kavanaugh. Right. This could be a rallying cry as much as anything else. Yes. I mean, I think it is a rallying cry to some extent. Uh, But, you know, how many women do you have left voting for you? Do you want to lose the rest of them? Hmm. Um, That's the rallying cry on, on the other side. And, you know, what does concern me as as someone who's who's not going to be voting for um, uh, Republicans this time around is that the the enthusiasm, the, the, the poll, there's a poll that gauges enthusiasm. And that one has tightened over the last week mm-hmm. so that it, the enthusiasm was on the Democrat side. And now uh, that's closed uh, down to, uh, you know, more like a couple points. And Democrats just don't get out and vote mm-hmm. when they're rallied as much as Republicans do. So that's um, so when you say, yes, they have the rallying cry, um, they do. They have one. And we'll see. Right. And as you say, I mean, on, on their default settings, when there aren't a lot of variables that can turn up the heat, uh, particularly in midterm elections, uh, Republicans can be more relied upon uh, to vote than Democrats. I mean, even with you know no particular cause celebrity, they tend to do this. Although, Margaret, one of the things that I wonder about is the Republicans who care the most about the Supreme Court tend to be the most religious Republicans. It's, it really is the religious right that worries the most about Supreme Court seats. And you sort of wonder, 
you know, how much debauchery they're willing to put up with in any particular nominee in order to, you know, get the votes that they want. It seems as though their patience is for that kind of thing is endless. But I, if I were an evangelical leader, I don't know, I think I would be communicating to the White House, yeah, no, we want the anti-abortion vote and maybe some of the other votes toward against uh, gay rights and stuff like that. We want all that stuff, but not this guy. Get me somebody who's not a reprobate. I've heard one or two evangelicals pipe up. Um, when the Access Hollywood take came out, Republicans, uh, elected Republicans thought, oh, my God, I better flee here now, until they heard from the base, which said, no, we want that seat and we don't want Hillary Clinton. And then they all got back on board. And I, they haven't moved from that place. Mm-hmm. They're still there. Or they wouldn't be as docile as they are. Um, so that, yeah. there seems to be to be no moral depths they won't go to. Last question. We're kind of running out of time. But, I mean, the, the, the way of dealing with Christine Blasey Ford, whom you, about whom you wrote so eloquently over the weekend, uh, you know, when you think about what they're abs- actually saying when they're being as charitable as they're going to be, and I'm talking about supporters of Kavanaugh, including Kavanaugh himself, saying, well, you know, probably something like this happened to her, but not, you know, not the way she says, not the way that she remembers. It wasn't me. I mean, to me, that's just another way of saying she's a crazy woman. You know, she is. She has deluded herself into thinking that she knows who sexually assaulted her, um, and I can't believe that that isn't going to be a motivating factor on the other side for an awful lot of women and people who don't and men who don't like women talked about that way. It was it was a dramatic moment when she said one hundred percent. She wasn't. She wasn't a, a pro at this. She'd probably never been in a mahogany paneled room, much less one with that array of people in front of her and all those cameras. But she did have presence of mind. And I, I didn't know if she was rehearsed. She certainly didn't go through the 15 hours of murder boards with the best lawyers in the country, or at least the best that the White House can hire, grilling Kavanaugh for days on end. But she just said, succinctly a hundred percent i'm a hundred percent sure so i i how do they spin that mm-hmm. and well. see the only i i do you ever do counter narratives if if kavanaugh said at the beginning listen i i i, re- I drank a lot in high school and uh partied a lot and i've never heard of this i don't know about it uh but you know, I, I drank a lot and I partied a lot, something along those lines. He'd have a little room. Excuse, but yeah. she's absolutely sure. You know, and we don't even know this FBI investigation. If Democrats don't stop talking about the time and just concentrate on the scope, because the FBI could do it in three days. And we are and Democrats already agreed to the time. But if they don't, you know, it's voluntary for Mark Judge. Right. Margaret Carlson, we're going to we're going to have to stop it there. It's so great to hear your voice on this show again. Let's not make it such a long time columnist at The Daily Beast and uh, author of a terrific piece in the New York Daily News. Here comes somebody to ask you to support us. I've got Betsy Kaplan's calendar for today. Let's see what it says. Pinot Noir for breakfast. Schedule meeting with Lex Luthor. Get rid of body? That one's underlined three times. Okay, what else? Produce show episode with Chon Wolf. 
Afternoon guided meditation. Why am I not an international crime lord? Well, at least she doesn't drink beer. Phil Geolopsis is our intern, unless that's the dead body she was talking about. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jeff Flake. Tomorrow, a show about Laura Ingalls Wilder and libertarianism, unless all hell breaks loose. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, let me say a little bit more about all hell breaking loose uh, right at the end of today's show. Um, first of all, it's a good bet these days. Uh, but I want to maybe just even talk to you a little bit about what we might do. Uh, but right now, I want to talk to somebody, somebody, and I want you to hear from somebody who actually has had a somewhat significant impact in, on my life. In the past, um, I used to be on a commercial radio station where I was kind of the House liberal slash House Democrat on an otherwise sort of Rush Limbaugh-type conservative station. And because of Ian Ayers, our guest, uh, I did this thing where I um, contacted the chairman of the Republican Party in Connecticut, at that time Chris Healy, and told him I would give him $500 if I wasn't able to lose X amount of weight in X amount of days. I can't remember the weight or the days anymore. But I did it. And I did it because I didn't want to give $500 to the Republican Party and also because the whole thing was being done rather publicly. Uh, but this is very much in the in the style of thought. And I had actually gotten this idea from the work of Ian Ayers, William K. Townsend, professor at Yale Law School uh, and professor at Yale's School of Management. His latest book is Carrots and Sticks, Unlock the Power of Incentives to Get Things Done. Uh, and Ian Ayers, welcome back to our show. Thank you. It's great to be all right. Uh, we, we, if you hear a little hiss there, we're using the miracle of Skype. It may take a little second or two for the Skype to cook up. So we should just sort of say overarchingly that one, some of your thinking has to do with either stated contracts or implied contracts and the idea that people are more likely to do something, something that might be beneficial if they, if they either have a punishment waiting if they don't do it or an identifiable reward from doing it. Uh, people usually don't do a, a thing that's good or beneficial if they think it's going to be painful and punishing and they're not going to get anything out of it. Have I, have I stated at least part of your thinking reasonably well? Yes. Uh, contractual carrots and sticks can really change people's behavior. Um, so uh, we're going to talk now about something considerably more serious than uh, me going on a diet, and that is the plague of people accidentally poisoning themselves uh, while uh, ingesting drugs, drugs that they don't always uh, know, uh, know the contents of. So m maybe you can talk a little bit about how you think this problem, which of course found its way to a spot very close, uh, uh, very geographically close to you when it happened at the New Haven Green in Great numbers in around New Haven uh, in recent months. So what's your proposal here? Sure. If, we, if needle exchanges can help eliminate dangerous drug delivery uh, devices, uh, maybe public health officials sometimes should think about actually trying to vacuum up bad batches of drugs by offering to trade uh, those bad batches for safer drugs. Now, right now, the only thing that they could probably legitimately trade without some substantial alteration would be would be marijuana, right? Exactly. Uh, and this is inspired by the uh, what happened on the New Haven Green, where 100 people uh, were being hospitalized uh, uh, for taking a bad batch of synthetic marijuana. And it was just our current approach is just to ask people to throw away their 
stash uh, to ask dealers to throw away their inventory, and that's that's uh, too big an ask. But you know, even I, first of all, I think this is a really interesting idea. And but if you were to do this at the level of dealers, which I think is the more efficacious way to get at this, in other words, locating every single person who might be about to use marijuana and getting them to swap out their stash would be it's too granular. I think it's too hard to accomplish. But it it also does involve a certain amount of collegiality between whoever runs this program and and the dealers who tend not to be too collegial with anybody else. How, how would you surmount that? Well, it, it may be hard to, to surmount, but the, the dealers themselves uh, uh, have a reputational interest in, uh, in providing safer uh, uh, drugs. Uh, drugs that kill their clients is not a great way to keep a clientele. And so it may be possible during uh, short periods where uh, people are dying uh, from synthetic uh, drugs to, to offer uh, swaps that uh, the dealers would take. And I think the New Haven experience there uh, uh, teaches us that sometimes the, the individual users are sometimes quite localized and, and we could make some progress even at the user level. Would it make sense just to buy back tainted drugs? Is that a less effective thing to do? It it might be, and I you know I, I thought that there might be some mixture of cash and uh, and safe drugs that might do the do the trick. The part of the problem is you don't want to give uh, 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 an incentive to actually spur supply of illegal drugs. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's nice about a straight drug for drug swap, especially something like uh, K two for medical marijuana is that it's not likely to spur uh, uh, additional supply. But if you set the price too high, you might actually cause dealers to to buy, uh, to try to bring in more drugs. We should talk about the fact that uh, one of the reasons that a K2 for marijuana swap might be difficult to uh, accomplish with at least one population is because one of the populations interested in K2 are parolees, right? Or anybody who has to be drug tested? Exactly. It's, K2 is harder to identify on some kinds of drug tests. And so some people, uh, parolees and others that are drug tested, may be reluctant to uh, to make this kind of a trade. So, you know, in a way, what you're talking about is, as usual, really, really intriguing. And we obviously, uh, we're already at a crisis point with people dying. Uh, and a lot of that is happening in the world of synthetic opioids. Uh, you have people who are inadvertently taking drugs that are tainted with fentanyl or methamphetamine or benzodiazepines. Um, but, I mean, we also have still a certain puritanical streak in our national drug policies anyway. The notion, even though, I mean, we got used to methadone clinics, but it seems to me the notion of some of the kinds of swaps you're talking about would be tough to sell almost at the level of public morality. Can you address that? I think you're exactly right. That, um, uh, But the, the pressure that may be coming uh, uh, as a counterweight to this puritanical morality uh, is that we may just be on the edge of a tsunami of uh, synthetic uh, drugs coming in. Fentanyl, Fubinica, uh, these are really 
incredibly potent, dangerous synthetics that uh, amateur chemists can uh, dangerously whip up uh, uh, at, in their homes and then mail through the U.S. mail into the United States. And if we start, we, we're already losing 30,000 Americans this year to fentanyl-laced uh, drugs. Uh, there's a good reason to think from uh, surveys in, in Rhode Island that 10 or 20 percent of those deaths are, are poisoning, not people who sought out the fentanyl high, but who mistakenly were, uh, took, thought they were taking heroin or other drugs, but they ended up being fentanyl-laced heroin. And if that 30,000 goes to 100,000 or half a million, it, when people are, uh, when a bad batch comes in, and if 500 people died on the New Haven Green, would, would that then cause us concern enough that we might bend our otherwise puritanical rules? Right. So if you want to go after that level of the problem, though, it seems to me that you have to make a further adjustment, right? The people who are dying, I would assume anyway, from synthetic opioids. Well, first of all, we should precede this by saying one political incentive is the problem is already significant enough. I mean, it's pretty much tracking with the number of people who die in car accidents every year. So the problem already uh, pre-tidal wave is, is, is significant enough so that the people who solve it, the people who can really uh, put a dent in the problem, are going to get the equivalent of ticker tape parades. There's a big reward waiting for people who have an effective solution, if this is what that is. But it seems to me if if you're using synthetic opioids, what you want is something that recreates the experience of taking an opioid. So now we're talking about something a little bit uh, more high octane, octane than marijuana, I assume. Yeah, and and indeed, there I think there are going to be some users who don't want to make the trade. They want to take the chance on, on they, they are actively, consciously trying to consume fentanyl or uh, they want the, uh, uh, several of the users on the New Haven Green went to the hospital and then came back and uh, ingested more of this Fubinica-laced uh, K2. And so those people that want the special the especially dangerous high, I think this exchange isn't going to, to work. But Prince died of, uh, of fentanyl overdose, and he didn't realize he was taking fentanyl, that heroin is much less deadly uh, than fentanyl-laced heroin. And that's the, uh, the, the, the uh, deep uh, question is whether uh, we're going to develop a new strategy against this deadly new drug. Right. I have a hard time picturing, you know, Orrin Hatch signing off on this whole thing, but uh, I guess... So do uh, I. Yeah. So, so last question. I mean, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of things to compare this to. Um, gun buy, buy, buybacks, you know, are a little bit analogous, although people's need for guns and how they understand their need for guns or, or this particular gun that they have in their hands at this moment, it's a little bit different from how they relate to drugs. But w when you look at gun buybacks, what does it tell you? Yeah, so they've had a differing success uh, in, in different countries. Uh, there's definitely not the, the same kind of uh, addiction that, that one experiences uh, with many of the users of these drugs. And they're usually long-term uh, offers where I think the prudent way forward with this idea, if it's used at all, is in response to particular 
uh, episodes of, of bad batches that we just somehow want to vacuum up uh, uh, if we can uh, uh, in a short period of time. And so it, it has this aspect of being like a, a, a short-term uh, buyback program. Um, Ian Ayers, we're going to stop it there, but thank you very much. As usual, Ian Ayers, a, a person with really interesting ideas, uh, ideas that uh, other people seem not to think of. William K. Townsend, professor at Yale Law School uh, and professor at Yale's School of Management. Uh, his books include Carrots and Sticks, Unlock the Power of Incentives to Get Things Done. He also wrote one called The $500 Diet. That was kind of the thing that I did. Um, as a matter of fact, I put that way back on. If there's like a gelato buyback program, I probably would be interested uh, in enrolling in it. Uh, all right, but I just I just buy more gelato, right? Uh, anyway, um, I, on a, another note, um, tomorrow, yeah, we do have one plan, but one of the things we've learned to do is to get rid of our plans. So, But it's really helpful to us if we know more from you. And there's two ways we can know more from you. One of them is that you know, people are going to ask you in just a minute to support this show, to support this show financially. It's very important that you do that. It helps us a lot if you do it kind of during our hour, too. We get a little bit more uh, street cred here around the building from that. And when you do it, when you call the number uh, or when you go online to WNPR.org to donate, you can sort of say, this is the kind of thing I like. This is the kind of thing I don't like. We're actually going to be doing some surveys in the not-too-far-distant future to try to find out what you like and what you don't like, too. Uh, but you can also just email me. It's Colin. This is my name, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. And one thing we'd be kind of interested in knowing is, for example, tomorrow— if this Kavanaugh show, uh, story keeps rolling, I mean, we're quite capable of putting another episode on the air and maybe one that involves your phone calls and uh, also some expert guests. So I don't know. I mean, it would mean something to me anyway if you let me know one way or another. Or if you need a break, if you need us to distract you with uh, uh, other items that speak to other parts of your brain, other topics, let us know that too. Colin at WNPR.org. Thanks for listening. Here come the nice people. I think it's Katie and Carmen, so you don't get much nicer than that. Uh, and they're going to ask you to support this show. Please do it because, first of all, it'll really hurt Carmen's feelings if you don't. <laughs>